you know, a lot of these changes we're talking about are, are going to be really amazing things for Alpental, particularly the international lift. That is a new lift. We're not just replacing lift there. We're um, getting people out to better terrain and it really starts to recenter the mountain and spread the crowd when we do that. That's an exciting development and it's been talked about for years. It's one of the uh, top questions I get from people as I walk around the resort. You know, when's that chair really going to happen? Is it going to happen? Well, the good news is it is going to happen. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Big, big plans announced at the summit at Snoqualmie today, and we are going to break all of those down in detail. First, I got you this interview, and I need one thing from you. Please go to stormskiing.com and sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter. The Storm is so much more than just a podcast. There is an article there that accompanies this episode with a ton of additional pictures and background and context to go along with this interview. But I am kicking out a ton of additional content covering the world of lift serve skiing that has nothing to do with the podcast. And I am doing that all year long. So please sign up for that. You can also follow the storm on Twitter or Instagram at storm ski journal for breaking news and daily updates. All right, let's talk about mountain gazette. Have you subscribed yet? If not, why not? I'm telling you having this thing on your coffee table is going to change your whole day. Let me tell you about Mountain Gazette 197, which is heading to the printer in the coming weeks. The spring 2022 issue is going to be stuffed with the kind of picks and stories you will not find anywhere else. Here's what I mean. The new issue features a stunning photo gallery of outdoor culture in Kiev, Ukraine before the Russian invasion. There's a story about mountain town soccer prospects, and a photo gallery by the one and only Jimmy Chin. Yes, the Oscar award winner is making his Mountain Gazette debut in issue 197. Plus, long form stories about skiing, the Jackson Hole backcountry, biking, whitewater rafting, climbing, and much more. If you think print is dead, you are wrong. The only way to reserve a copy is to subscribe. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 83, Guy Lawrence, President and General Manager of Summit at Snoqualmie, Washington. Okay, Pacific Northwest skiers, if I've learned anything from my episodes with the leaders of Crystal and Timberline, it's that you guys are in this. You are very very vested in the few ski areas that you have, and you have very strong opinions about which way these things should go. So I am pumped to bring you the first conversation with the leader of the summit at Snoqualmie that goes deep on the resort's 2030 plan. This thing is huge. Eight new or upgraded lifts, including, at last, a chair up international at Alpental. Top to bottom snowmaking and a new lodge at Central, RFID, and much, much more. This is a long one, so I'm not going to belabor the intro. Let's do it. My guest today has been president and general manager of the summit at Snoqualmie, Washington since 2018. 
summit is made up of four unique mountains with a total of 1,994 skiable acres served by 24 ski lifts. Three of the ski areas, Summit West, Summit Central, and Summit East, are connected, while the fourth, Alpenthal, rises 2,280 vertical feet with some of the most challenging inbounds expert terrain in the Northwest. The resort averages 426 inches of annual snowfall. Opened in 1937, the ski area is, along with Stevens Pass, the oldest ski area in Washington and is just 51 miles from downtown Seattle. Summit is one of 10 North American ski resorts owned and operated by Boyne Resorts. He has worked at Summit since 1995 when he joined the resort as its race director. He has had stints managing the Summit's MTB program and terrain parks and spent three years as the ski area manager at Alpenthal. He then spent 18 years as the resort's marketing and sales director prior to taking the general manager job four years ago. Prior to that, he spent a dozen seasons, mostly back-to-back, as a ski instructor in Europe, North America, and Australia. Guy Lawrence is my guest. Guy, welcome to the storm. So good to connect with you and talk through this monster plan you just released. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks very much, Stuart. Yeah, definitely an exciting time for the summit. Well, first of all, before we get into this big plan, how has this season gone at Summit? You know, it's it's kind of been a strange one, to be honest. Uh, I mean, they've all got their own personalities, right? But this one, uh, you know, it, it started uh, yeah a little on the later side, about mid-December for us, which is not super unusual, but, but still. And then it really got going around uh, the December holidays. And uh, through the tail end of December and end of January, it was just really intense. Massive amount of powder days for uh, people. Lakes were tired and sore. Uh, all the good things you want. But through all that, of course, we you know we were trying to deal with the snow. We lost power several times, which was uh, real, really tough. Tough on the guests and tough on, on the staff as well. So that was um, that was an interesting period of time. But uh, And then we went dry for almost two months. So... Again, sublime to the ridiculous in some ways, I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, and then now we're tail ending the uh, the in, in the spring with uh, cold, snowy conditions. So, go figure. It's uh, certainly been an interesting one. I'm not sure I've seen one quite like it. So, anyway, that's uh, that's how it goes sometimes. Well, from my seat out here on the East Coast, it looks like you've been getting a monster storm cycle out there. What kind of totals have you been getting over the past week or two, there, guy? You know, we've been, uh, depends where you, where you take the tunnel from, of course, we have huge variation from uh, base elevation to, uh, to higher up, but, you know, well over two feet and up to three or four feet, depending on where you are on the mountain. So, you know, these are not small amounts. And I think really the fact is they're staying cold. You know, we, we, we're used to getting a bit of snow in, in, uh, in spring and in April, particularly not unusual, but the fact it's just stayed so cold is, uh, that's, that's very unusual. You know, I was exchanging messages with a reader of the newsletter just a couple of days ago, and he was saying that Crystal, which normally has much heavier snow, he was up there and he said it was, it was like Utah quality. Have you been getting the same lighter stuff? Yeah, I mean, Crystal's a, a bit of a thousand feet higher for their base elevation. So they definitely get a, a little bit colder and drier than we do. But, it, but yeah, no one's complaining. It's It's been um, <laughs> sub 30s um, consistently, which uh, which is very, like I said, very rare. So unusual normally you know 
around here when you get that snow in April, you, you got to get out there the first two hours or it's mm -hmm. going to warm up and, uh, as we call it, hot power. But uh, it has stayed consistently cold, which is great. So what are you going to do with all that base, Guy? You have been known to push the season into May. Are you going to make it this year? Yeah, it's an interesting one, and there's a you know there's a, there's a little bit to talk about there. You know, for many many years we we pushed on uh, past April. We always want to get to at least to the end of April uh, as a rule. I know a lot of uh, resorts close up around mid April. We we traditionally always pushed on to the end there, and sometimes in May, sometimes the first week of May. Uh, at one point, many 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 years ago, we actually made it all the way through to uh, Memorial Day weekend. So that was that was a massive season, six month season. <laughs> Um, our challenge this year is uh, obviously not the snow anymore, although we did wonder uh, at one point, would we make it into April? But um, you know, with all this new snow, it, it's uh, been great conditions. But the bigger complexity for us, and as uh, everyone is uh, seeing, we've got some massive plans ahead of us. And so we've started to um, you know, let some of our year-round team get, get breaks earlier than we normally would. So mm -hmm. it does mean it, it's a challenging proposition to push on past uh, May 1st. Uh, highly unlikely we would do so this year, really particularly because we have such a, a huge workload. Summer goes very quickly around here, and, and we really want to make sure we get a lot of these uh, these things done this year. So it uh, may not be the, the greatest news for some people, but it is really important we uh, we complete this summer successfully. Well, lots ahead, but there's a lot to talk about, and Summit has a really interesting history. And, and I want to go back, because you've witnessed a lot of it firsthand, like I said, you've been at the ski area since the mid nineties. I'm going to guess guy that you did not grow up in Washington. So where did you grow up and when did you start skiing? <laughs> yeah, no, indeed. The accent gives it away. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I grew up in, in Sydney. That's uh, mainly where I, where I lived when I was younger. Um, and I didn't come from a skiing family. We all tried skiing, but independently, which was interesting, mm -hmm. but definitely not a ski family. And uh, we always had farming property. So, you know, I had kind of a city country upbringing if you will. And in fact, you know, if you look at my yearbook from high school, you know, my ambition was to be uh, essentially a, a primary producer or a farmer. So, and maybe it's not so different from what I'm doing now in some ways. <laughs> There's some analogies there, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, so I started skiing uh, the year after I left high school. I, was, uh, I think I was 19 and I went with a mate to uh, one of my rugby mates to Mount Hutt, New Zealand. And uh, it was really cheap skiing there back in the day, a little bit cheaper than Australia. And I was instantly hooked. I mean, I think a lot of people maybe listening can, can relate to this, but of course I went straight to the lift, straight to the T-bar. Um, <laughs> no, no thought of, uh, <laughs> of messing around on the flats. Uh, well, that's what I was told by my mate, that uh, <laughs> I should be able to hack it on the T-bar. So, uh, but I do remember sliding down on the T-bar and thinking this is the best sensation. I can't believe this is amazing. And then my, my next thought was, and I, I'm not lying, I wonder if I can make money doing this. I wonder if there's a career in this. <laughs> so um, it's obviously turned out to be a, a pretty decent thing. So anyway, but that was my, my early days. So yeah, I, I started late. And I think actually that's really helped me um, through my career because I can relate to adults learning to ski and snowboard. You know, it's not like uh, my kids who don't remember learning to ski. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just something they've always done, like, like walking. But, but not for me. And so I've always uh, valued that, that fact that I can relate to that. And uh, I think it's helped guide me through my career. So take us through this. So you have that great day at Mount Hut. Did you instantly just drop out of school and start skiing somewhere? Like, how did you end up getting into skiing 
and getting a just becoming a, a frequent skier and and really adopting that lifestyle and and how did you start working in it yeah so it, um so after 1984 i i uh i had that the trip to new zealand and then i came back to australia and got a couple more trips in before the season ended and then i applied to be a lift operator at, at perisher uh in new south wales and uh was successful so i became a uh, a lifty in 85 and uh, i was a lifty for two seasons. In fact, I think I was a lead the second season. Just really got really well networked with a lot of good skiers uh, at the time, both ski instructors, race coaches, and and actually a lot of the lifties were really good, just as, as good as some of the instructors as well. And, uh, you know, I had two or three of them particularly uh, took me under their wing because they, they could see I wanted to improve uh, by skiing really fast. And uh, they really got me into racing and doing NASTAR as well. So really from from 1985 to 1986 you know i became a pretty pretty decent skier i, I never want to say i'm a great skier but but decent and enough that uh a couple of the austrians offered me a job uh you know, following winter in in austria so that kind of started a, a whole lot of back-to-back seasons for me parisher for the listeners who are not familiar with it is not just any ski area that is the largest ski area in australia and in fact it's now owned by vale Tell us about Parisher and what kind of experience skiers would have if they ever ventured to that part of the world to ski. Yeah, like you said, it's a, it's a massive resort, really. And it's a little bit like the summit. You know, we, we're made up of four original ski areas that were independent at one, at one time. And then uh, Parisher joined together the four areas over mostly about within about a decade. It's, it's mostly intermediate. Um, it's got a sprinkling of more challenging runs in different zones, but you know, it's really a great resort for a diverse group of, uh, of people, families particularly. Uh, it was a really fun place to work as a ski instructor and, and as a high level kids coach. You know, I, I think there's, it, it's a pretty sophisticated resort as well. I, I think maybe there's a perception that um, ski resorts in Australia are, um, you know, just little mom and pop operations, but, um, to be honest, and as you said, I mean, Perisher has 50 lifts, a lot of tea bars and wow. other things. Yeah, but it's a big resort. And um, back here, I think it was my second season, must have been around 1986, 87, uh, there was actually an installation of a ski tube, which came from uh, below snow level. And uh, it was a, a train that essentially traveled through a tunnel up through the mountains, had, a, had its first stop at Perisher and second stop at Blue Cow, just further up the line. A lot of really nice hotels and restaurants, lodges. It's a it's a real scene, and uh, it, but Australia is a bit of a novelty. You know, it's not not exactly a ski destination. Not thought of that way, and it is pretty expensive. So, um, not a lot of Australians actually go skiing, but those who do are very passionate. Just like uh, I like the people over here in some ways, but uh, <laughs> but it is a fun place to ski. I mean, the snow gums are goofy looking if you're from uh, the northern hemisphere. There are a lot of kind of big old rocks and weathered mountains, but great for freestyle. A lot of good jumping and moguls and stuff like that. So it's just such a fun scene down there. So it sounds like a heck of a place to start your career. So then take us on the adventure. You spent a dozen years as an instructor chasing winter from hemisphere to hemisphere, all around Europe, all around North America, back to Australia. Where did you go? What was your, What places stood out to you? Just kind of take us along on this dozen years. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, my time in, in Europe was great. You know, the, for anyone who's ever been to Europe, has been skiing in Europe, it's just such a large part of the history and the DNA. You know, I sometimes think of, of skiing in Europe as a little bit like, uh, you know, surfing to Australia. It, it's pretty much everyone's owned a surfboard or tried surfing. 
most people are at the ocean or at the beach in Australia. It's the same in, in the mountains in Austria or, or, or Switzerland or, or France or Italy. It's a big part of their lives. And, um, and it's just an amazing experience. You know, I remember, you know, I'd have a group for the whole week and we'd kind of move around different resorts depending on where we were. But it, it was really a more relaxed lifestyle experience when you ski over there. You know, you ski around and you'll drop into a farmer's hut up on the mountain for lunch. And you'll be served by um, the farmer and his wife, typically. And you'll be sitting at long tables along with a, a lot of people you don't know. And everyone's having a great time. You get a great meal, very simple menu. Um, there's usually a little bit of alcohol involved, um, <laughs> typically. <laughs> and uh, and then you're often in the day uh, skiing, you know, to another mountain house on, on the way down the hill to uh, to finish out. And, uh, again, maybe a blue vine or, or a Jaeger tea or something like that. Um, but just really some good kind of cozy atmosphere. It's not just about hardcore skiing, but that's obviously out there as well. I, I think Europe just, it, it's really hard to translate Europe uh, to other places in the world. Australia actually was started by Europeans uh, largely. So um, there's an element of Europe in, in Australia in the ski fields there, which is interesting. But definitely a contrast to, um, to skiing in North America, that's for sure. So did you try to go to different resorts every winter in Europe or did, was there was there one that you went back to over and over again when you were working? Yeah, I, it's actually, I did three seasons uh, in a smaller uh, ski town called Kirkdorf, which is just north of Kitzbühel. It's about 14 kilometers north and uh, on the road to Salzburg. Um, I, I really enjoyed it there because it was, um, it was a really manageable experience and I got along really well with the ski school director. And, uh, you know, as I actually climbed the ranks pretty quickly and usually as an Auslander, you didn't get to teach anything but beginners, but, um, but I actually ended up with, um, with pretty high level intermediates towards the end there. But the great thing about that town was, um, it, because it was a small village, we bust to different mountains. So including places like Biberbrunn, which is obviously on the free ride world tour, just an amazing hill, but, uh, we did get around quite a bit and skied a lot of great places. But a lot of it was around like the, the that those valleys there, the Kitzbühel area, places like that. And then actually my fourth season in Europe, I, I did uh, switch up to a bigger resort, ended up in Kitzbühel. It wasn't a great season, so I had actually transitioned halfway through to Vale that year. But it, it was a place where I met my wife, so that was that was something good oh, wow. that came, came out of that season. So, um, but uh, yeah, look, anywhere you go, I mean, I think the amazing thing about Europe is, um, you know, the 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 villagers and the farmers own the lifts and you can actually ski from village to village. So you can essentially start in one village and end completely, you know, nine or 10 villages across the other side at the end of the day, you never ski the same run, you're on different lifts and you're, you know, it's just a really interesting kind of configuration compared to, uh, to Australia or North America. That said, obviously there's some really big properties over here, big resorts. And so I think it's, you know, it's just a different aspect to, to what you see, you know, from here to Europe. So where did you work in North America when you mixed in? You mentioned one season in Vail. Where else did you go? And what was your impression of that? Um, well, Vail was an interesting one. I, um, I actually couldn't get a work permit. They really wanted to offer me a job. So I did what most Australian uh, boys do when they can't get a work permit. I did work in a cafe <laughs> uh, <laughs> for a little bit, but, uh, but I was really going for my full cert when I got back to Australia. So I was mostly really just wanting to, uh, to ski and train for that. So, but Vail was an interesting experience. I mean, it, it, obviously it was a long time ago. This was back in the 89, 90 season. 
but I had a lot of good uh, good friends working there from Perisher, which is why we ended up there. My wife came with me, and uh, she worked in the uh, in the kids ski school at um, Golpe. But we decided not to go back to Vale the next year. We got a offered a job in Yosemite of all places, um, and so we worked at Badger Pass the next year. That was a that was quite an experience and a difference from from Bale yeah. Mountain. So, I don't know. <laughs> not sure if you've ever been there, but it, it it's such a yeah. fun little hill. Uh, it's very ski school focused, and actually the uh, the contract we had was really good, and uh, wages were great, especially if you had request privates, things like that. But I worked for um, the legendary uh, ski school director Nick Fiore, who was a who was a French Canadian guy, and he was such a fun fun guy to work for. But uh, really, just one season there. And then following that, I decided to get a little more serious and, and uh, get back to my university degree. So we settled back in Sydney. But I still did some work for Perisher um, throughout my university degree as well. So I kept my hand in there and did some marketing for them in Sydney. So in the mid-90s, you land in Washington, it would seem permanently. Uh, what drew you to Washington and why have you stayed for so many years? Yeah, we... It, the way that came about, um, you know, as I was finishing out my degree in, in Sydney, and I had been working for Perisher, like I said, um, I kind of put together a contract to uh, help them out with some marketing in Sydney. They didn't really have any representation there. And the plan was that I was actually going to open the first Sydney office to, to connect with um, travel agents and, and uh, retailers and people like that to help organize and get more market share. It was looking good, but the, the budget fell through at the last minute right as I graduated. And uh, my wife was working in, in a travel agency at the time. She was helping manage uh, something there in North Sydney. And uh, we kind of looked at each other. We'd always thought we, would, we should probably live in both countries and, and try them both out before deciding eventually where we'd live full time. Uh, she wasn't enamored with her job. So we said, you know, now's as good a time as any. Let's, let's uh, pack up and head out. So we did that. We, we landed uh, in the Northwest in, uh, in 1995. And the reason we chose this area was... My wife grew up in Olympia, and uh, and so we just figured we wanted to be relatively close to family. But I also heard great things about the Cascades and, and a lot of the mountains in the northwest. So that certainly was a uh, was a focal point. I sent out about twenty five or so resumes to resorts around the northwest, and it was actually Dave Moffat who was the um, the owner of the pass as it was then, now the summit at Sokomi, who uh, who offered me a job and uh, based on that resume in management. So like I said, we packed up and we came over here and I started uh, working here in October 1995. So really interesting time that I entered into this resort. At the time, you know, they, they'd been busy buying up, you know, the areas here at Snoqualmie Pass. And uh, I think it was only three years on from their, their final acquisition, which was uh, at the time called Hayak. Uh, we call it Summit East. And uh, about a year, year and a bit, you're 14 months after I started with, uh, you know, with the pass and working for Dave Moffat. He actually announced that they had, so the family had sold the um, the entire resort to uh, George Gillette and the Booth Creek Ski Holdings. So that was early '97 when that uh, when that transitioned. That and that really started, a, you know, a lot of uh, interesting sequences and changes for the resort in general. Uh, and you know. That's what kept me around. I originally thought I'd only be here a couple of years. I wasn't really used to, you know, working in a non-destination area. 
But there was something about the place that really kept me around. Um, Alcatel definitely helped. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely some legit terrain. I'm sure we're going to get into that soon. But uh, uh-huh. but yeah, no, there's just like, something about the people and the place and the mountain that, that kept me here. And great challenges along the way in different roles. It just kind of made it a really fun journey. You know, and, and, and at this point, I mean, you know, my wife and I have raised our, our two boys at this mountain. You know, they've worked here. Uh, they've both been involved in, in different aspects of it. They uh, they love skiing. It's it's a big part of their lives, and so you know we're here. This is this has become a true home for us. So that's uh, that's how how I ended up here. So let's just go back to 1995 for a moment, guy. That region has changed so much, and and Summit has changed a lot too. So what was Summit at Snoqualmie or the Summit, as you said it was called back then? What was it like? Just the infrastructure, the mountain itself, the skiing back in 1995? Yeah, it was definitely um, it was definitely a typical family-run uh, ski area. The four areas, you know, Alpental, Snoqualmie Summit, Ski Acres, and Hayek, were all, even though it was really one ticket for that point, they really did run firmly as, they felt almost independent of each other, even though the three areas on, on, on the, uh, the other side of the freeway from Alpental were all connected. You know, it, it still felt very much as it had always been in some ways. And, but it was the early days, you know, of, you know, the, the, the total mix being together. And I think it was still finding its way uh, for what it meant. But I um, I do think that the Moffat family realized that, you know, the, the resort really was on the precipice of, of needing some pretty big change and a lot of um, capital improvement. And, you know, I again, I'm, I'm not sure if Dave's ever really talked to me about it specifically, but... I have a feeling, you know, he, he may have realized that it might have been time to um, to, to hand it on to um, to someone who could maybe realize a lot of the opportunity that everyone's always talked about for um, for this resort. So pretty sure how that, that that's how it went down. But um, I think again, we didn't have any plazas back then. You skied right into the basically right to the door of the lodges. You you had to walk up to um, almost all the lifts. Which was an interesting uh, thing it was a lot of rivulet double chairs back then. You know the, the lift configurations all really updating, and, and we'll get to some of that I'm sure as well. But um, it, it has changed a lot, and there was Booth Creek and uh, and Boyne Resorts have changed quite a few things since since I first started. Like I said, the plazas were a huge improvement to the to the base areas that uh, that happened, like Alpental, Summit West, and Summit Central. You know, putting in fire pits, just making things a little more guest friendly, a lot more guest focused. And of course, we have had some lift improvements over those years as well in different aspects. But uh, yeah, back in 1995, it was a very basic operation in a lot of ways. And what was the volume like back then? That region, just the population has exploded. And, and not only has the population exploded in Seattle and the environs, but the wealth has as well, which, which I think has really changed the character of a lot of the ski areas and also who's skiing out there. So just talk a little bit about that evolution and how that has changed as far as how busy the ski area is and, and really who's skiing over the years. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a big, big one actually. So we'll dive into this a little bit. Uh, again, for those who don't know the summer, it's very well. It, it's really close to the major metropolitan area that is Seattle, Bellevue, um, even Everett and Tacoma. It, it's it's on a major interstate freeway. I ninety runs right through the uh, through the middle of the, the resort. 
Um, so really easy to get to. And you know, a lot of a lot of the migration and the development has, has really been up the I-90 corridor. So our market only gets closer every year. But it, it was always a popular place because it was so easy to get to, even with its lower elevation and um, the the different base areas. It was always popular because it was the kind of place that you could come to, spend a couple of couple of hours, two or three hours even, and then head out. And that really hasn't changed. That element is still there, particularly uh, midweek. But as you say, you know. There's been a lot of change since 1995. You know, around the, I would say around the mid 2000s, particularly, um, we really started to notice the influence of the tech market. There was a lot of people moving here from overseas, or a lot of people moving from from interstate. And um, you know, really in the last 15 years, the the region has seen massive growth and. I think, you know, that, that has influenced a lot of things. You know, we leave that, that kind of fairly aggressive uh, growth pattern um, that we've seen in the region. It had, certainly has amped up particularly peak demand on you know, weekends and holidays. And it's really gotten to a pretty critical point, I think, in the last three or four years particularly. You know, I remember the season before COVID, we were starting to see some weekends. We never really had any limitations for the most part. You know, we, we've always had a lot of seasons pass holders naturally, and we've kept the, the, you know, the pass program fairly affordable traditionally because we're open night and day, uh, lots of opportunity to get up here. But we really noticed that the weekend pressure was just getting almost out of control, uh, a little crazy, and, and really not comfortable for either the, the guests who are coming here nor our staff trying to, um, to, trying to service them. So. Three or four years ago, we did start seriously talking about, okay, we're going to have to start managing inventory um, because this is not sustainable. Um, it's just really not a very nice experience on the weekend particularly. Midweek, not so much, but we definitely saw an uptick in interest in night skiing and stuff like that. But what, uh, you know, what, what transpired after that, of course, is uh, as we were kind of gearing to, to think about, you know, managing our inventory more on peak, peak times, COVID, of course, hit. That accelerated a lot of things. Obviously, the interest in the outdoors has been intense, and I think most ski areas in the country have noticed that. I've seen it. Everyone has their story, but um, because of because of our proximity to the market, we are really we, we we were hit really hard. But the state government actually mandated um, a massive reduction of lift loading in the COVID year, so that actually forced a um, a limitation, if you will. But this year we did go into this season with a much better management of inventory. Our goal was to um, to really come down off those heights that we'd seen three or four years ago to a much more manageable level, about twenty percent less. And so this year, we you know we, we definitely saw the, the benefit of that. And we'll get into a little bit of that digital evolution and some of the things that you're doing when we talk about the twenty thirty plan and get into that deep. First, guys, want to back up. Let, let's give us the two minute overview of these four ski areas, kind of the the brief history of what each of them is and how they came together to be the modern summit at Snoqualmie that we know with these four ski areas today. Yeah, so um, you know, a lot of people uh, credit some, uh, the, well, we call it Summit West now, but the um, Snoqualmie Summit ski area uh, as being the, the, the first ski area or maybe equally with Stevens Pass uh, in the state. But what was really happening back uh, back in the 30s was um, there was skiing at uh, at the Hayek, the Summit East area, and there was also uh, skiing here at uh, Summit West. 
but it was all walk-up skiing. You know, it was just hike and ski down type stuff. What changed was that uh, Webb Moffat, Dave's uh, father, uh, installed a rope tow in 1937. This had been a state park, community park, if you will, and uh, and he got permission to put in a rope tow and, and start a ski area. So that was a huge change. But there was definitely things happening, you know, across the, the pass area. There was a lot of uh, a lot of interest in skiing in general. And of course, with its proximity to um, to Seattle, um, it was the closest area. So that that obviously uh, you know promoted the the whole skiing ethic up here. But uh, so everything really, really essentially did start at Snoqualmie Summit Ski Area, Summit West. And then it, uh, you know, things moved along. There was obviously improvements through the war. You know, Webb added uh, lights. So the whole night skiing thing was born out of that. But right around uh, 1948, you know, the area next door, which was actually all private land, Summit West is all mostly on uh, on public land. A, a guy named Ray Tanner actually bought up the public land, uh, I mean, the private land next door. To Summit West and started ski acres, and he and he moved pretty aggressively to uh, to make you know the best of, of that area. He installed the the first chairlift about a year after he got started. It was just a single chair, and so Summit West actually uh, came back with a with a double chair around '52. So yeah, the first robot double chair I think in the state of Washington. So and I'd say through the '60s, you know, there was a lot of a uh, lot more aggressiveness and sophistication, if you could put it that way. A lot more uh, double chairs were installed, and uh, I, I'd say ski acres and, and uh, Snoqualmie Summit were kind of vying for you know who was the king. But uh, I think uh, Snoqualmie Summit was really the the most populated area. Of course, at the same time, you know, you also had the Hayek area that was developing and trying to trying to keep up and catch up as well. And uh, and then of course in uh, in 1967 in December, Alpental came online, and uh, that was obviously, you know, a huge move for Snoqualmie Pass because Alpental is uh, one of the most uh, amazing ski areas in the country, and that that really was like the cool younger brother that joined the family, if you will. So, <laughs> but uh, they all had their own stories for sure, and uh, we actually have some pretty good, you know, history recaps, particularly around Alpental on our website. Uh, one of the founders at Alpental uh, actually has written a great overview. Did that about ten years ago, so it's definitely worth reading. But again, you know, it's really the proximity to, to the major metropolitan area has always driven the success of Snoqualmie Pass and, you know, the, the Moffat family surely but slowly bought up all the areas over time, over about a 15 to 20 year period. And so when, when Dave finally did decide to sell it to Booth Creek, you know, it was all one ski area, one complete area across the whole entire Snoqualmie Pass region. And why does it make sense to keep them? Because the... I, I get why Summit, Central, East, and West are separate, but why not split off Alpental and do its own thing? Why does it make sense from a scale or, or, or whatever other management? Why does it make sense to manage those all as one ski area, even though they're not? Yeah, so it's um, it's, it's an interesting um, question. And I think, Stuart, the um, the complexity of Alpental, um, it, it's interesting. The, 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 the guys who founded Alpental, uh, Bob Mickelson, and Jim were, were they were go-getters, right? Like a lot of uh, ski area pioneers. But what they didn't really count on, I think, was the intensity of how much snow removal that had to deal with with the private road that goes in. It's about a mile and a quarter from, from Summit West, but um, the Alpental Valley does get more snow and a lot more snow than, than really the rest of the pass areas. And um, and so they struggled, I think, with um, you know, the needs and the maintenance of snow removal. And then, honestly, the the 
the, the, the big element of Alcantol, of course, is the avalanche control work. It, it's pretty constant, like in a, in a relatively normal season, you know, anytime we get over four inches of snow or conditions are changing, things are happening, it, you have to actively uh, do a lot of avalanche mitigation. And, you know, that that is a really expensive proposition. So, you know, I think it all became part of one area, you know, one family buying up the entire place really because of economy of scale. It made sense for Alpentol eventually to become part of the Moffat family holdings um, because they did have the means and the, the economy of scale, like I said, to, um, to mitigate some of those uh, extra expenses. So when we talk about, you know, Alpentol, should it, you know, get off the same ticket or, you know, any of those conversations. I mean, I think it's, it's food for thought and we, we recognize more and more that the Alpentol customer really desires uh, that experience to be special. And it is a very defined community. Trust me on that one. You only have to look at the April 1st joke that we, we pulled recently <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to, to see that passion. <laughs> uh, we knew we'd get a reaction, but boy, that was a, a nice reminder. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, it, it is a special place. And, and I think more and more, you know, we, we've always differentiated, or let's, let's just say in the last 10 years or so, we've started to really differentiate more and more Alpentol from the rest of the areas with the unlimited pass. So we have two main passes that, that give you peak access. The unlimited gives you Alpentol and everything else. The LTD pass gives you everything but Alpentol on the weekends. So that's, that, that is a little self-defining. And if people notice, we actually did raise the rate and, and the difference from our traditional difference uh, between the LTD and the unlimited pass in our recent pass seal. And that's in recognition of the fact that we, we do you know, need to start recognizing Alpentol as that prime property and that highly desired location. And, uh, you know, we, we haven't concluded uh, all our thoughts there, but we are starting to really uh, recognize it in, in several ways. So that, that's that's how we look at it. You know, the, and of course, uh, you know, we can talk about the operating schedule and how we, how we kind of bring the different areas online throughout the week as business levels increase. But... Um, it has been a good formula up to now, and then of course we're reviewing what we're doing uh, all the time, particularly as we start to look at the lift improvements that we're uh, we're going to put in at Alpentol, particularly. Okay, so humor me on this pie in the sky question, and I ask it a because I'm super curious, but b because I know if anyone would do this, Boyne would because it's the king of over the top <laughs> lifts. Have you considered connecting Summit and Alpentol across the freeway? with a gondola or whatever. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, maybe just in our <laughs> dreams so far, Stuart. Um, but <laughs> we do joke about it, but, you know, never say never, right? Uh, it would be quite an ambitious project, but uh, definitely not one to uh, consider, I guess. But uh, no, nothing firm at this point. Uh, <laughs> you, you won't see it in that plan uh, that we just released, but, uh, yeah, that would be something for sure. <laughs> All right. So when you look, I, I realize there's a historic element here of the three ski areas, but they are the summit, central, east and west. They're all side by side. Why not just put them on one trail map? Why do you still keep them as, as distinct little areas with their own map? Yeah. So the trail map might be a little uh, deceiving, really, honestly, the, <laughs> the complexity of having such a, a wide or broad mountain is it's really hard to get it all onto a map that's usable and and viewable, especially when you're thinking about foggy goggles and 
And, you know, if you're in your 40s or 50s, you, you know, your eyesight may not be quite as good as it used to be. I can attest to that. But, uh, but um, yeah, it's really more of a, honestly, more of an attempt to, um, to try and focus in on the, the different areas and make it more legible and easier to, to digest as you're skiing around. But, but really, that, you know, that shouldn't lead anyone to think that we don't consider uh, some of West, Central and East as, as really one continuous area on the, on the weekends, which is when you can actually ski between the areas. And really, you know, the sign will continue to promote because it is a really fun journey to go from Summit West all the way to Summit East and back again. And I think once you, you know, if you're a family or you have a group, but, you know, it is a, a great exploratory kind of adventure, I guess, if you will, to, to go from one side to the other. So it's, it's something we have promoted in the past. We actually call it the S90, which is obviously mimicking the I-90 uh, yeah. journey. But uh, it is a fun thing. I have done it several times this year already just, just because you can. So no, we, we really do treat them as one ticket, three areas. Um, and, of course, they help them all geographically separated, but they're also on the same ticket. How wide are the summit areas from end to end, just those three? Yeah, uh, about, it's about three miles or so. Uh, three and a, three and a bit. It's probably approximately five miles from Alpentol to Summit East. So it, it is quite quite a wide resort. Of course, the the areas at, at Summit West, Summit Central, and Summit East um, have shorter runs. You know, they're a little less vertical than Alpentol. And Alpentol is is a tight mountain. You know, jokingly kind of call it a small big mountain. It skis a lot bigger than what it, what the acreage suggests, um, but it is a lot more you know traditional and vertical. You know, you've got almost 2,300 birth there, so it's um, it's a lot more uh, more traditional in that way. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the lowdown with, with how we look at the mountain. So break this down for us, guy. You have four different ski areas, all you know, one ski area under the same umbrella, but they all have their own personalities. They all have their own functions. They all have their own schedule. Some have night skiing, some don't. It's very hard to understand if you're not someone who's familiar with the ski area or skis at all the time. So break this down for us, the four areas of Summit at Snoqualmie. Yeah, so uh, we've been talking quite a bit about Alpentol. Um, it's, its reputation is deserved. It is a very challenging, it's simply amazing. If you're a high-level skier or snowboarder, I mean, it's really not for everyone. But if you love challenge um, and steep descents and, and micro lines everywhere, and of course it's got the back balls area, that is the area you want to head to. So then so, uh, Summit West is really more a, a focus for beginners and intermediates. It's where a lot of people kind of start their, their, uh, their learning experience for skiing and snowboarding. And so I think uh, you know a lot of people think of it that way, but it is a, it's a beautiful little area. Uh, it has a lot of fun aspects to it. But you know, beyond the beginner areas uh, and the intermediate runs, um, it does have some rowdier terrain as well over around Wildside. So uh, it's it's not it's not like it's all completely benign, but uh, for the most part, it is a great place to to start the journey. Summit Central has something for everyone. I, I don't always really like that expression very much, but it does have a really good mix of, of terrain. It starts off on the on the lookers right. It has a lot of steep to flat type terrain, but, but a lot of that, uh, the lower flats is, is great for beginners. We have a, a great uh, quad chair there that we just put in a couple of years ago, holiday. And then we have magic carpets and a nice little beginner zone there. Would be nice if it was bigger. Uh, that would be the one comment I'd, I'd say about a beginner zone there. But, um, you know, all in good time, that's, that's certainly part of the plan. But then as you start to move more and more to the left, you know, the steep start to transition a little bit more evenly. We actually have, you know, the left side of Summit Central really includes Silver Fir, 
And the Silver Fir area has its own lodge, which we just built about uh, seven or eight years ago. And uh, it's a beautiful Northwest Lodge. It has a high-speed quad chair we put back put in there in the, uh, the late 2000s. And, um, and you really start to get into tree-lined runs. Summit West and Summit Central do have a lot of open skiing. You can, you can really see where you're heading to without any issue. Um, whereas as you, you get over Silver Fir, it does start our tree line run. So it's really the, the start of what you, you think of as the quality free skiing zone. And that really continues on at Summit East. Summit East, we only run on weekends currently, although we are exploring opportunities to maybe expand that, that there. But uh, it, it has tree line runs almost in its entirety. It does have a couple of faces on the front side and the back side, which are fun skiing, but you do get a lot of tree skiing everything from really nice cruisy green runs to the blues and some black diamonds as well. So it, it, it probably is our best terrain mix overall. And I think that's why, you know, when you have diversity in a group or you have a family, uh, it tends to tends to be the attractive place to head to. A lot of people do ski between Silver Fir and, and Summit East. And that was always really the design was to be, be able to park in one of the two areas and, and ski back and forth. Um, Summit West and, and Summit Central do have a lot of ski school activity. So on the weekends, you know, you are, you are dealing with a lot of ski school groups and stuff like that. But um, again, that Silver Fir to Summit East zone is, is really where the fun stuff is. And, uh, you know, a lot of young families, once the kids are up and skiing and, and gotten through their lessons, tends to be where they want to head to. I know we did that with our kids. And, and every weekend I'm over there, I see the same thing happening. It always puts a smile on my face. So. <laughs> uh, but that's uh, that's essentially the breakdown between the areas. Where do we go for night skiing? So night skiing, uh, you've actually got options at Alpental, Summit West, and Summit Central, mm, and, nice. and and Silver Fir, of course, in that mix. So uh, depends on the time time of the week. Those who know us well know that we we have a kind of ramp up operating schedule throughout the week, and it all peaks around the weekend. But Alpental operates nights uh, Tuesday through Friday night. And then uh, Summit West actually comes online at 4 p.m., Wednesday, Thursday, Friday afternoons. Um, we're looking to maybe uh, expand on that a little bit more. But uh, nice. it, it does mean we can groom uh, Summit West right up to the point we open, and then it's open for, uh, for fresh groom product for the evening. So, And then Summit Central, uh, of course, and sorry, excuse me, it's open Saturday night as well. Mm, nice. Yeah. Summit Central uh, is a seven-day week, six nights. So... Every night but Sunday, you'll, you'll get night skiing at Summit Central. And uh, Silver Fur uh, comes online on Wednesday night through Saturday night. So uh, another great destination for evening skiing. Where do we find the most snow, Guy, by ski area? Alpental, hands down. It's, it's, got, it's got its own microclimate. So you can even have a large variation. It's only 100 feet higher than Summit West um, in, in the base elevation. But, but that valley tends to have its own little microclimate. You often uh, will see just an exponential amount of snow there. And then the difference between the, the bottom of Alpental and the top it, it is immense at times. It, it's crazy how much difference there is in that 2,300 feet. So, uh, uh, and that's why Alpental, the, the, the upper mountain at Alpental, is often in the top 10 and, and quite often in the top three in North America. It's just so incredible to me. And it, not, not only the difference between the ski areas, the four ski areas, but you're 50 miles from Seattle, which I looked it up today. It averages fewer than six inches of snow per season. How is it that you're so close and you average 426 inches? Just break down the geography of us and the the, the weather and how that all works. 
Yeah, it's an interesting weather system around here. Um, it's a coastal mountain range, and of course, we we're really oriented to the um, to the west side of, of the Cascades. Um, although technically, I, I guess summit east is, is um, starting to head into the eastern side. But there is a big difference between the west side of the Cascades and the east side. The east side is much drier. But um, really, what the the, the big uh, factors that that you know equate to some of those snow totals is the fact is these big storms come down from the northwest of us, from Alaska and, and out in the Bering Sea. They come down through and through the Straits of, of Juan de Fuca and into the Puget Sound area. Uh, that convergence zone often funnels over Snoqualmie Pass or Stevens Pass. And so it, it can make for some amazing stormy uh, totals at times. It, it's never really super cold. But again, we're in a coastal mountain range, so... You know, if you get below 25, that's that's pretty interesting and not completely rare, but it, it doesn't happen that often. We tend to be in the 27 to 30, 31 degree range. And so, you know, do you, you do get a lot of moisture in the snow. But, you know, since the advent of fat skis and snowboarding, it, you know, the equipment allows you to do amazing things in the snow here. You, you really ever feel like you're skiing, you know, the hard pack underneath. You know, we do get our bony days at times because, again, the fluctuation in temperatures uh, can can be pretty uh, pretty large at times, but for the most part, that snow is once it gets going, it can be um, really fun to watch. And then the other factor that gets us is, you know, at three thousand feet, you know, we, we might be looking at on the weather page, you know, a four thousand foot snow level, right? Um, which would mean that we're probably getting rain at three thousand feet, or well, that's what you think would be happening. But we have this uh, really interesting system that comes from the east side uh, called the Easterly Airflow. And what happens there is the, the cold air sucks down from Canada, from the Fraser Valley, and it comes through all of the passes. And so what happens is, even if it's a 4,000-foot snow level, we're getting bucketed with snow at, at 3,000 feet, thanks to the, uh, the cold air that's flowing through. So it does, uh, does allow us to stay in snow most of the time. It's, it's an amazing thing to watch. God, it's so interesting. You're just right in that Goldilocks zone. Exactly. And I, I think our, our biggest problem is really just getting started for the season at 3,000 feet. That, you know, it can be uh, a little bit touch and go, you know, and that's why snowmaking really is going to be an important component in our future plans. But usually once it gets going, it's, um, it's a pretty reliable thing. So, uh, again, it's, a, it's definitely a fun zone to, to be operating resort in. All right. Well, for the early seasons, help is on the way. So let's get into the 2030 plan. You just announced this this week, the trail forward plan. I have a lot of specific questions you can imagine, but break this down for us on the highest level. What is the Summit at Snoqualmie 2030 plan? What are the highlights? What are you trying to achieve here? We're talking about a major transformation and and a promise realized is how I look at it for the Snoqualmie Pass area. It's it's an amazing thing. This has been a long time in, in the planning, and obviously we still have work to do, but we're talking about you know a major modernization and transformative process here. It's really all our hopes and dreams. I, I think that all of us had my team along with our, our guests. We're talking about a lot of the things that, that we've had so much feedback on over the years coming together in this plan. It's so exciting. You know, starting with Alpental, I don't want to overuse the word transformational, but it really is. Alpental for all its benefits and what an amazing hill it is, it does get jammed up in a lot of places. It's really uh, what I what I describe as a left justified mountain. You know, we've got the Armstrong Express there um, servicing the lower mountain and up to the upper upper mountain as well. 
we do get a jam point there quite often on most weekends. And then, of course, um, the Edelweiss chair, which is a, a services the upper mountain, chair two, as we lovingly call it. It can be, you know, sometimes a 40-minute lift line or longer, particularly on powder days. And that could even be a Wednesday or Thursday. It, it's it's our old riblet double chair, and it's our oldest chair on the entire pass. So, you know, a lot of these changes we're talking about are, are going to be really amazing things for Alpental, particularly the international lift. You know, that's really a, that is a new lift. We're not just replacing lift there. We're um, getting people out to better terrain, and it really starts to um, to recenter the mountain and spread the crowd when we do that. That's an exciting development, and it's been talked about for years. It's one of the uh, top questions I get from people when, as I walk around the, uh, the resort. You know, when's that chair really going to happen? Is it going to happen? Well, the good news is it is going to happen. So, <laughs> as you can see, the plan. So uh, it, that that alone is uh, is a big announcement, and we've got so many more. But beyond Alpental, you know, we are obviously just really trying to elevate the mountain experience generally, and and all the areas are getting some kind of benefit, several benefits in a lot of ways that will finally update and modernize and transform each of our zones. Um, we're talking about a lot of new uh, lifts and upgrades, you know, better technology. Uh, we've even got some lodges coming online. We're talking about now snowmaking. We've been working on that for a long time. Of course, elevating food and beverage, including trying to get more food and beverage on the mountain. So again, that experience that skiers and snowboarders will have at the summit will be such a different thing. That'll be so much better than what it's been, you know, in, in our history. So we are really talking about something that is uh, amazing and really off the charts in a lot of ways. You know, and beyond the lifts and the, the, the larger snowmaking and things like that, in this day and age, you know, basically most people buy their products online and then arrive at the hill. So the delivery of those products and getting people from into the parking lot parked and up to the lifts, trying to make that easier and more convenient is a huge focal point. That's a large part of the convenience factor. So streamlining that is, is part of the plan. And then, of course, we're looking to uh, use the mountain more, particularly in the summer months. And um, a lot of people know that we are uh, aiming to get a, a, a mountain bikes uh, park up and running later this summer. We've got a lot of work to do there, but um, that's really just the starting point for um, a lot more summer adventures for the uh, for the summit. Um, but it is a very exciting component. This this region has a lot of avid mountain bikers, and a lot of them are our guests already in wintertime. So just just a huge addition to the mountain. And of course, you know the underlining uh, you know the summit and and all our point resorts is the forever project so you know really trying to create a sustainable operation and a future you know it, and stewardship is really important to focus on and of course we have uh, a carbon neutral goal for 2030 so that really is driving a lot of what we're doing as well but uh it, it's just such an exciting time to uh to be at the resort and uh to look at what we're, we're laying out for our guests and uh for our team as well it's just simply amazing and uh like i said transformative so much good stuff in there, Guy. Let's go through some of the details here. Starting at Summit East, you will replace the Hidden Valley Double. That is a 1974 riblet that actually was originally a Cachellus, and that was moved over. And now you are putting in a new Doppelmeyer Triple. That's one of four Doppelmeyer Triples that you'll be installing as part of this, and the other three at Alpental, which we'll talk about. Uh, but but that, that actually, from what I understand, that lift is already being demolished. So that should be in place for next season. Why was it time to replace that lift? And why was a triple the right lift for that location on the backside of East? Yeah, all good questions, Stuart. So um, it, it is true. We've already started taking down the Hidden Valley Double, but um, 
You know, generally speaking, um, not that we have it out for riblet chairs. We we love our riblets. <laughs> have done for many generations, but um, but a lot of them need need to be updated. And even though that that was a uh, the combination of riblets that were put together to open the backside about uh, ten or twelve years ago, it, it's it's a it's an area that is so important because we've got uh, quite a bit of acreage on the backside of Summit East. We struggled to keep some of it open this year with that chair, and you know, honestly, because of staffing. But um, the thing that really brought it home for us, and why we really opted to get a, a triple chair in there, is one: we want to keep the terrain balanced. We don't want to blow it out. So, but a triple chair is a great advancement for that area. But it also gives us the um, the option to run the backside, maybe sometimes in priority over even rampart chair. Which is the secondary frontside chair. The 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 way that things happen at, at Summit East on the weekend, uh, the base lift East Peak will be very busy for the first hour of the day, and then people tend to distribute it around the hill pretty evenly. And Rampart gets used quite a bit, but being able to have an extra person on every single chair from the backside, and it's a modern chair at that, it's just it's a really good advancement for that uh, for that area, and uh, we're excited to to be able to get going on that already for 2022. Same alignment, same unload, same terminal. Yeah, almost identical. Um, the alignment is uh, it, spot on. Um, we are going to actually put a um, a loading conveyor on that lift mm, nice. to make it faster and easier and, and more consistent for loading. So that's a nice little advancement. Um, and we are going to make a little bit more room at the bottom to um, to allow for that. So it uh, it'll actually move forward from where it currently loads by about fifty or sixty feet. But um, other than that, it's all the same. So you mentioned on the front side of East, you have two lifts. You have Rampart, which is really new. That was installed in 2014. That's a nice um, nice new quad. And then you have the East Peak lift, which is a triple that dates to 1988. That's the old silver fur lift. So take us into your decision here to replace the backside lift before upgrading East Peak, which comes right there out of the parking lot. Yeah, well, and and... Uh, it's it's important to note that um, we really do see East Peak as being upgradable in the future. Um, we don't really mention it in the plan per se, but it's definitely um, it's something we have our eye on, and I think eventually uh, we will get down in that zone and, and look at an upgrade. But uh, in the short term, you know, again to rebalance the hill and get more reliability to the back, and knowing that the the crowd on East Peak really tends to be tidal, um, tends to be at the beginning of the day. Um, and then it evens out. It's really more about that balance factor throughout the day. So we felt really the priority was to to get a triple chair to the backside, and um, so Summit East remains with the uh, with the East Peak as a triple for the primary load at the start of the day, and then people will fan out nicely between uh, the other two lifts. All right, so let's move over to Central here. Really big news with the Central Express looking at an upgrade there and a new alignment. So what kind of lift are you thinking for Central Express? And tell us about that alignment and how will it differ from what you have today? Yeah, so the alignment, uh, it isn't uh, a huge change, but it will move lookers left. And so it'll actually move a little bit more to pole line than where it, how it currently uh, sits there. And that's really just to make some room for the, uh, the new 666 lift. And then the new lights will actually kind of be to the right of the, the 666 lift. So it's really repositioning things if you think of it that way. You know, right now we're focusing on improved lift technologies and, and really increasing capacity overall. 
So, um, you know, ultimately what we install will, will be a, a huge advancement for our guests. And there's no doubt about that. You know, Central Express is consistently our busiest chair and it runs seven days a week. So uh, upgrading that, that technology and that lift and, and, you know, moving more people up the hill is the priority right now. And there'll be more to come on that. And so are you considering a six pack or an eight pack for that position? Well, um, you know, obviously an improvement is going to be uh, more skiers and, and uh, more people moving up the hill. So, you know, I'm not going to point my finger on, on, on exactly what that lift will be. But again, uh, the lift technologies out there are, are amazing. And having increased capacity there is going to be a huge win. So you're moving the bottom terminal. Is it going to unload in about the same spot, do you think? Yeah, it's, going to, it's essentially going to be exactly where it is right now. So uh, the offload doesn't change a whole lot. And there's a lot of room up there. We do have a trail map that we probably have to move, but other than that, it's, it's quite a nice uh, area. What can you give us in the way of a timeline here, Guy, for an upgrade of Central? Yeah, Central uh, Express is definitely, um, it's an important lift to upgrade. And, um, you know, we're, we're looking to get this done within the next three years or so. There's always a lot of factors that, that, that go into determining exact timing. But um, as it is such a huge upgrade for the resort, and it is our busiest chair. We won't be waiting too long to implement this one for sure. You mentioned you are moving that terminal to make room for triple sixty. This is a really important upgrade, I think, because it it really not only are you upgrading the capacity on Central Express, but you're bringing triple sixty down and basically making redundancy out of the base. So tell us what you have in mind for triple sixty. Yeah. So. Um... Triple sixty right now, you know, it's it's a nice triple chair, but um, for those who, who ski at Summit Central, you you climb your way out of the parking lot up to the base area, and then you climb your way up to triple sixty. <laughs> so it is a lot of climbing, and therefore it's it's not the most desired uh, lift. Uh, people may get to it eventually, but generally, uh, I think triple sixty's uh, popularity is affected by the fact it's so far up on the slopes and not easy to get to. So, you know, all of us here at the summit and, and um, the planning team, you know, within Boyne Resorts, we all agree that we don't want to install a new lift to have it be up the hill. We want to get it down to a more convenient location. And so really ultimately bringing it down to um, the, the lookers left of the new lodge and the new base area and close to uh, Central Express is, is really where it belongs. And so getting it to a high speed lift um, will be a huge improvement yet again. Personally, really excited about that one. I, I think it's going to balance out the hill really nicely. It's going to move a lot of people quickly to different areas of the hill, you know, between Central Express and, and 666. So these are really big moves. And Summit Central is our busiest area. Of course, we run it seven days a week. So these are going to be big benefits for our guests. So the 666 is an old triple chair. And you said you're upgrading that to a high-speed quad. Is that right? Yeah, we're, we're really, uh, you know, Central Express, the existing chair, it would be a great candidate. Of course, it, it would be modernized and we'd be upgrading a lot of components uh, on that lift to reuse it. But, um, you know, Central Express uh, high-speed quad is a great chair. So uh, it, it's highly likely that we will uh, utilize it in, in that new lift. So to, just to lay the timeline out and repeat this. So, so in general, from the way I understand this, the goal, and I understand this isn't always the way things happen, but what you're thinking is you take Central Express out, you put in a new upgraded lift on a slightly different line. Then you take triple 60 out, put the old central express high-speed quad in a new line going from the base lodge up to the current triple 60 unload. That lift is likely to be a rebuilt central express and that will open probably 
at least a year after the upgrade of Central Express. Do I kind of have that right? Yeah, quite possibly. So uh, <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't pinpointed uh, the exact relationship between the two, but you know whether we were able to do it in, in the same year or whether it be successive years, um, yeah, we'll have more to, to talk to on that front. But uh, they will be closely associated, let's put it that way. Will you still call it triple sixty when it's a high speed quad? <laughs> well triple sixty is actually uh it's more more relates to the name of the run than uh, uh, than the okay. list. So uh, <laughs> I I'm not sure what what came first, the chicken or the egg, but I'm assuming the the the, <laughs> the run was the uh was the starting point. So uh, it's highly likely we'll, we'll keep the name, but uh, you know, you never know. Things things sometimes change. Is is this new configuration going to change gallery at all? Is that lift still necessary just to serve that blue terrain? Yeah, uh, gallery will remain right now. So so what happens uh, currently? And it's really interesting. It probably goes back to that discussion we're having about population growth and the popularity of the sport of skiing in in recent years. So we took out the old holiday riblet double chair around three years ago, and we installed a fixed grip quad chair with a loading conveyor, and that was a significant upgrade for that uh, beginner zone that, and that beginner chair, of course. But what happened was immediately it was a really popular chair. So the lift lines <laughs> that we saw on the old riblet double chair on holiday, um, it looks really similar. Of course, it's a much better experience with the loading conveyor and and it's much nicer lift overall. We, we, we wondered whether we would need gallery anymore once we put the uh, fixed grip quad in. But it's been proven many times this season that we've had to keep you know, gallery on standby and ready to run. And it, it runs pretty much every weekend and even some night times as well when we have ski school activity. So for right now, gallery stays. Ultimately, you know, um, there'll be future plans that, that may affect gallery uh, and how long we keep it around. But uh, yeah, for right now, it stays. Elsewhere on Central, Silver Fur is pretty new. Holiday, as you mentioned, is pretty new. Easy Street and Reggie's, those both date to the early 70s. Those are a couple of more old doublet ribbles, uh, riblet doubles, excuse me. They both they serve green terrain. Any thinking around those two lifts and whether you want to keep those in place in their current configuration in the future? Yeah, that's definitely a target for us to uh, to improve that area. You know, and ideally we'll replace those lifts at some point with a maybe a fixed grip quad chair or something around that capacity. It would make a lot of sense. So to, just to clean it up a little bit, but still have great access. You know, the, the thing about that zone is uh, it does have to have a stronger link to the main part of Summit Central to make sense. And so we're, we're still working through, you know, how that link may, may work. It is to the lookers left of, of uh, Central Express. Uh, but it's quite a ways over and up a little bit of a hill. And so it's, it's a little bit hard to transition from Summit Central, the main part of the base area, over to that zone. But if we can figure that out, and we will, then sometime in the future, we will uh, look to uh, improve that area as well. It, it really has some of the best beginner terrain on, on the mountain. And um, so that's why it's such a big target for the future. So really big upgrade at Central is snowmaking. And when I was out there over the summer and we were chatting and you mentioned that Summit didn't have any snowmaking. I couldn't believe it. And, and you know, I, I could because it's in Washington. I know you get a lot of snow, but this is Boyne we're talking about. And I grew up in Michigan and Boyne is the snowmaking king. And, and they always stayed open until May. And out east at Sugarloaf and Sunday River, they always post these videos where they're firing up their snowmaking systems in September as soon as the temperature gets low enough. So I was really shocked. Obviously, Boyne knows what it's doing and and is is well equipped to do this. So Tell us about this snowmaking system, just from a 
infrastructure point of view, kind of where it'll be. And then just the importance of this to Central and how it's really going to change the whole operation and how you can guarantee a season. Yeah, um, absolutely. I'm happy to expand on that one. But just a, a point of accuracy, we, we technically do have a very small snowmaking system. Ah. Um, it's it, it really was uh, put in quite a long time ago to help mm-hmm. us with the uh, the lower part of the terrain park. But uh, and so we do utilize that. There is well, that I'll, I'll own that one then. I, I, <laughs> I, I remembered wrongly. I will no. not accuse you of, of telling me <laughs> you're giving me bad information. Yeah, <laughs> I just, just figured I'd be accurate because someone's going to yep. pinpoint us both on this one if I don't mention it. But that said, um, and then we actually did invest, uh, thanks to Boyd giving us the, uh, the capital to do so, we did invest in some snowmaking at our tubing park, which is just on the opposite side of Summit Central. Uh, uses um, you know some of the parking lot system there at Summit at Summit Central, so that was a, actually a really good trial plot plot to, uh, to to base on this bigger system. So we do have a modern system down there at the Tubing Park as well. But our, really, our goal, but back to your question, our goal is to cover almost all runs at Summit Central. We would really want to have a solid offering to open the season and to open on time. You know, we want a, a good mix of runs and for for all abilities, and so it's important that we not just hit say the Central Express zone, that we actually, you know, are able to move across all the way to the beginning areas as well. It, it's a pretty ambitious plan. You know, water is it's not the easiest thing to come by. So, but, you know, we, we feel like it's got to be a high priority because really it's a pivotal point to the advancement and modernization of the resort and to, to create a lot of dependability. So, you know, as you said, Boyne has a lot of snowmaking, a lot of history, I mean, really quite an amazing history and has been part of the innovation of snowmaking and the summit will be part of that in the future. This might sound like a silly question, but you mentioned that Central has a lot of open space and and I noticed that when I was there. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's very Midwestern in how they've cleared off the hills and and it's it's really making the most of the of the space you have, right? Have you thought about as you move to snowmaking and and you mentioned that you want blanket coverage and that water is a little scarce, as it is in many places in the West. Have you thought about replanting a little bit and making more trails rather than this giant open face that you have? Yeah, it's, it's, that's an interesting one. And I, um, we actually had talked about it uh, around 20 years ago. And we actually did put a few stands of trees in, mostly at Summit West. But as it pertains to Summit Central, you, you're right. It is um, a big open face. And uh yeah, there's not a lot of mystery to where you're going. You can see everything <laughs> from pretty much any point. It would be fun to uh, to think about putting some uh, trees in in certain places. I certainly wouldn't rule it out because let's face it, you know, trees do kind of accentuate you know the, the mountain and the ski experience. And it's a really good question and uh, definitely something we'll be uh, considering in the future for sure. So where is that water going to come from? Yeah, this is a big one. We could spend an hour talking about this. <laughs> um, yeah, water is a huge issue uh, where we are, as, as you've mentioned. That's the reason there isn't more snowmaking progress, you know, for us. And I know other skiers in the in the state, you know, had their their troubles as well accessing water. You know, the snow we make now is is treated water. It's really expensive. Obviously, we don't need treated water. So we're working in conjunction with the the local water district, and ultimately. The Department of Ecology to get access in the future for untreated water, which will supply the snowmaking system. So that's an ongoing uh, exercise right now. The access to more water is, is for us at Snowcombe Pass is tied up in the in the mandated uh, mitigation by the Department of Ecology, and part of that is the release of treated water into the, the Yakima system. 
uh, via Coal Creek up here at Snoqualmie Pass. So, you know, our local sewer district's working through um, through quite a few ambitious plans at the moment based around that. But once it's completed, you know, the availability of water will, is going to improve greatly. And that's really going to be the, the key for us to keep moving on our snowmaking ambitions. And, and really the timing, I don't think, is, is too too bad there. Um, hopefully in the next two to three years, things really start to set up for us to be able to aggressively move forward. We're certainly not idle on this. You know, this is like any process, particularly involving, uh, you know, government agencies and, and complexity. It's important that we continue to push forward. And uh, so we, we're continuing to work with the, like I said, the, the local water district and other experts in the field and uh, DOE, of course, as well. What's your ideal timeline here and what trails are you going to move on first? Yeah, well, the, uh, I think the main run under Central Express or the, the two runs there, uh, Golden Nugget and uh, Alpine Bowl would be very high priorities because if you're an established skier or snowboard and you want to start your season, that's where you're going to be heading. Uh, we'd love to think about the fact we could maybe get some of Silver Fur as well, certainly in our sites and, and part of the discussion. But then I'd also say then the priority would be the beginner zones, uh, the magic carpet areas and uh, up to holiday. They would certainly be uh, a good target as well. But really, ultimately, you know, trying to get triple sixty face and parachute face, you know, they're all really important, and so we really look at them not really in stages, but really mostly as a whole, and so that's the goal. And do you plan to move snowmaking into the other three ski areas? At this point, no, but I certainly wouldn't rule it out. You know, it would be be nice to think about trying to get some snowmaking in the summer west, but right now, you know, it's it's really expensive to uh, set up snowmaking infrastructure. And I really do think our best bet and uh, focused attention needs to be at Summit Central. We we do own Summit Central. Almost the entire portion of that area is private land. Um, so it does, it does speed up execution and process as well. Not to say that uh, we don't have a great local office with the Forest Service. Uh, they've been fantastic uh, to work with uh, through the last many, many years. But um, you know, when it comes to putting in a snowmaking system, you know, having, having private land to work with, um, is an advantage. Tell us about this new lodge at Central. Is it going to replace the old lodge or is it a new building that's going to add on just even more capacity? Yeah, this is going to be, it's really not just a lodge, but it's really a base area as well. You know, right now, I mentioned it earlier, it, it, when you park at Summit Central in the parking lot and you cross the street and head up to the Central base area, it really is a climb. <laughs> I don't think yeah. I guess particularly like it that much. It's it's good for, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's good aerobics, I guess, but um, yeah. But definitely not something we want to sustain uh, for a lot longer. Um, so the, the focal point of the, the new lodge and the base area is to move it into an easier location to, to get to. And so it does move Lookers Left down towards uh, Central Express, as I mentioned earlier. So it's, it, it would be really opposite the, let's look at it this way. If we think about the, the left side of the parking lot as you're looking at the hill, the location will be toward the, the lower end of the magic carpet there and close to Central Express. It would be a lot easier to get to that. And when you're building a new building, you can do a lot of great things. Um, you can plan for all kinds of things that uh, will modernize and make a better guest experience, you know, on steroids, to be honest. All the things you would expect from a ski resort needs to be in that lodge. I mean, right now, if you, if you just really want to get on a lift and go, and a lot of people do that, it's, it's one thing. And a lot of people will always question, you know, in the Northwest, putting a lot of money into, into lodges and base areas. But there is an extraordinary amount of people who really need to utilize base facilities. Our rental shop at Summit Central is really tight and not very big at all. It's, it's, it's tough to deal with. 
it takes a lot of orchestration to work in and around our base area currently. You know, the new lodge will start to really open up the guest experience in a big way. You know, those base area services, food and beverage, much better bars and flexible food and beverage space would be another focal point. You know, we allow us to do weddings and catered events, conferences, but really overall, just a beautiful Northwest architecture in that zone, making it a lot nicer to, to be in and around and utilize, better for our team as well to work within and really modernizing the, the, the whole experience of eating and drinking and, and renting skis and, and just enjoying the full experience of a ski resort will be the focal point of that lodge. Really excited about that one. Um, we, we're planning currently that, uh, you know, the other thing that's open for Summer Central is um, supplying the base area with deliveries and things like that. And so we are hoping to incorporate a delivery loading dock underneath the lodge, for instance, and just speed up the process of how we deal with things. It's a, you know, it's all really important to the to the running of the resort. So that that lodge does mean a lot of things to a lot of people, and uh, and we're excited for it just as much as we are about all our new lifts. Yeah, I've I found that uh, the folks who say that lodges are superfluous are typically skiing without kids or don't have them or haven't had that experience. So uh, those of us who have gone through that fire know how necessary a good lodge is. Let's uh, let's move over to West here, Guy. You're planning an upgrade for Pacific Crest. What do you have in mind there? And what is your timeline on that project? Yeah, so um, Pacific Crest is not in the near-term category at this point, as, as, you, as people will see in the plan. But it will be a major improvement once it's completed. You know, we're, we're still seeing there's a few seasons out from now. But, uh, you know, the move to a modern technology forward high-speed lift will be a massive game-changer for Summit West. The, the reason uh, Pacific Crest is a, is a fixed grip quad chair is when Booth Creek took over in 1997 and we really just had a, a lot of old antiquated lifts, they wanted to make a big statement and they immediately bought five groomers for us, which was great because I don't think we had a groomer that was uh, newer than 10 or 15 years old. And then they really wanted to put a chairlift in and, and this was the, the pivotal chair that they, they identified. <laughs> but they could only get a fixed grip quad. It was, it was on short notice. And I think I remember how this whole story went, but uh, we, we really, those of us who'd worked here for a while, and that wasn't necessarily me at the time, I'd only been here a couple of years, but everyone realized that uh, while it was great to get a new lift, a higher speed lift would be, or a higher capacity lift would be more important because while Pacific Crest is not technically a beginner lift, it, it is the transition lift from the beginner zone. So we have so many beginners that that, that uh, transition is really important. It, it's, it's been a tough chair as a fixed grip quote in that location. Adding the loading conveyor definitely helped a lot. Um, that was retrofitted quite a ways back. But really finally modernizing that lift to a high capacity lift is going to be amazing. And when you do that, when you have a high speed lift there, will that make Dodge Ridge redundant? That's another 1967 riblet double that is exactly parallel to Pacific Crest with a little bit shorter line, higher terminal and lower unload. Will that lift be redundant and will it go? Ideally, yes. Um, I mean, the goal overall across the whole entire mountain is to clean up our slopes, you know, wherever we can. That doesn't mean I'm necessarily taking lifts out, but, you know, we have the opportunity to increase capacity with one lift and the quality of the experience. And it means that, uh, you know, a redundant lift uh, can go away, then that's, that's a good thing. I do think that we will find pretty quickly that we don't need Dodge Ridge once we uh, once we modernize Pacific Crest. So that's the hope. I think we're down to nine riblet chairs at the moment. Uh, <laughs> take, take the Hidden Valley out. Uh, we'll reduce it to eight. 
So again, if it's a redundant lift and we can remove it, we will. I think Dodge is likely to be eventually removed because of the, the capacity of the new Pacific Crest jet. Let's uh let's move over to Wildside. You have an upgrade coming there and a new alignment. Tell us what you have in mind. Yeah, Wildside. Uh, like I said earlier, you know, Summit West. Wildside is the rowdier part of, of uh, Summit West. That terrain is not to be taken lightly. Uh, a lot of fun over there. But uh, the, the target there is a fixed grip quad chair. You know, it's highly likely we, we may repurpose the current Pacific Crest chair. There's really nothing wrong with the Pacific Crest chair. You know, obviously, again, we're going to do some upgrades to that lift. That's what we choose to do and modernize it. Having a, a fixed grip quad chair at Wildside would be um, a massive improvement. And then, of course, part of that is not just uh, staying with the existing alignment. It, it can be really actually hard to see Wildside when you're on Pacific Crest currently. It's on the far end of the left side. Look as uh, part of the resort. So the, the realignment is also a large part of uh, the success of that new lift. And so it does bring it a little bit closer to the, uh, the central part of Summit West moves over to the top of the uh, upper parking lot. I think it, it's going to make the mountain ski a lot better, a lot cleaner. And of course, it will be easy to ski from lift to lift and see where you're going. But the thing about uh, Wildside, uh, as all the locals know, it is really one of the connections between Summit West and Summit Central. Um, we did we did purchase Mountaineers uh, several years ago, and that was the, the private land that was between Summit Central and Summit West. So we now have a, a lower crossover for in, uh, low intermediates. But if you want to cross over and get to the to the more challenging terrain, people still use the crossover on the upper mountain between central and west, and so that's where Wildside particularly will uh, continues to to be a key factor to the the connectivity between the two areas. It also allows you to drop into to the fun you know rowdier aspects of the mountaineer zone as well because it does have some steeps and and uh, some really nice tree skiing in those zones. So it's a really again another important advancement for the summit. You mentioned that those crossovers between West, Central, and East were bigger than they appeared on the map, and it, it sounds like you own at least part of that land. And this isn't mentioned in the 2030 plan. Have you thought about developing those areas with trails and lifts? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just because it's not in, in the plan or spelled out uh, specifically, um, the Mountaineers will, uh, will be a, a big focus in the future. I mean, there's developable land that's uh, ski in, ski out. That's certainly a very tempting opportunity. And so that's that's part of that. And then obviously um, then the potential to put a lift in there is also very tempting as well because it would create better access to that zone where you could actually lap it versus kind of moving back and forth between central and, and west. But it also could provide access to for any real estate that was in that, that zone as well. So Mountaineers is a great zone. It was always one of those areas that everyone used to poach. And it wasn't a very well-kept secret. That was a great place to go to when it wasn't part of the ski area. And really nothing has changed. It's still a great zone. So, you know, we have big plans for the Mountaineers area. And I think as we uh, move along with a lot of these other plans, it's, it's definitely in that mix. And I really don't want to, uh, to you know, take that out of the mix or, or insinuate that um, it's not an important place. It really is. How much acreage is that area? You know, I think you're looking at around uh, 40 acres or so. It's in two parcels currently. There's an upper and a lower parcel. It, it, it did have an old lodge. I think it burned down maybe about 15 years ago. But the Mountaineers, Seattle Mountaineers, uh, ran a private club there for, for decades. So a lot of people have great memories of that area as a private club. It had uh, two or three rope toes. Eventually, over time, they, they um, ceased to operate. And so 
once the lights burned down, there really wasn't a lot of reason for the club, I think, to, to keep possession of it. And that's when they approached us about buying it. So we're, we're obviously really happy to add it to the mix. It's, um, it just makes the link so much stronger between Summit West and Summit Central. How about the land between East and Central? Is that developable? No, it's a fairly sensitive zone in there. And so, you know, there's, there is some wildlife activity and things like that. When we went through the master development plan process back in the mid 2000s, you know, we were able to get the, uh, the rampart chair installed, but, but in the original MDP, um, there was another chair that was going to go a little bit further <clears throat> to the right of rampart. And uh, it, it got taken out because of some of the sensitivity in there. And that, and that's honestly why um, when we, ran through the process for the new mountain bike park. We purposely kept to the right of that zone, uh, even though we kind of push up relatively close to uh, to that section of land that's sensitive with respect to the process and, and kept the trails right, right to the edge of it, but, um, but not in that zone. But it's still going to be a very exciting mountain bike park. All right, let's move to Alpental. Three new chairs going in at Alpental, all Doppelmeyer triples. Well, I should say one new chair, two replacements, Break these three chairs down for us, Guy. Yeah, so we talked earlier about the international chair, and we can we can come back to that one. Of course, that is a brand new chair. It's not a replacement. And, and as I mentioned earlier, it's pivotal to uh, unjamming Alpental and and creating better access uh, to to the the terrain that people really want to get to. It goes out to what we call the Null One Zone, which is just beyond the existing rope line, which delineates between the main ski area and then the back hole zone. So we'll push the rope lines out a little further to encapsulate the top of the lift. And so your access to the back balls will start from there. And that lift will, it actually gives pretty good access to to the uh, outer back ball zone. It would be a very short hike, and I'm talking short, from where that lift offloads up to the uh, the upper traverse, which takes you out to the uh, really exhilarating terrain that's uh, in those outer balls. It also does give great uh, access to some of the, what I call the inner back bowl zone. So you could choose to um, to follow the rope line down into snake dance and elevator zone, or you could kind of continue to come back into the ski area, into the international run. International is, is a really steep, long, fantastic run that goes top to bottom of the resort. It, it really opens up a lot of opportunities to go in all kinds of directions. That's a, definitely an excitement advancement. So then Cecil chair is an interesting one. Right now, it's a it's a riblet double chair. It services uh, races and uh, ski schools on weekends. It's it's really close to the base of Armstrong lift. And what we think we really should do is separate it a little bit more and bring it more towards St. Bernard, which is the little beginner lift, another riblet double chair. So move a little bit more to look as right, load further up that way, and then it would go up and hopefully just stay on the right side of, of the Cecil face area I mean, the key is to really keep the towers off the face itself for the most part and uh, keep the skiing clean. So then it takes you up higher than the existing Cecil chair, really into the lower snake dance exit area. And then it means you can ski as an intermediate from that chair and pick up the last part of uh, lower international, which is a, a really nice piece of terrain. And then down, either down to the Cecil zone or down towards the lodge. That is a really nice improvement. It's a triple chair because again, we want to keep the balance head up until really uh, tight and balance it right. It's important that we get that right. So, And then, uh, of course, you know, we, we've looked at Edelweiss chair. It is our oldest uh, double chair in the resort. It's a really key component to the success of Alpental because 
without it, we can't really do proper avalanche mitigation. So anytime that we have a, a powder morning, um, you know, our ski patrol uh, has to go up and access a lot of routes from the upper mountain, a lot around the cliff band area, which keeps the lower mountain safe and, and openable. So while we all love that chair, I mean, we really do. There's a lot of deep passion <laughs> for chair two or Edelweiss, but we really do need to modernize it and um, you know, keep its dependability into the future. And so um, adding an extra seat on that lift really is the right thing to do in that modernization process. It's an important component for sure. But again, that gives you an amazing access to both sides of the upper mountain and up and tall. And uh, I think people are going to like those improvements a lot. So lay out the timeline for us. That's three big projects, three new chairs. What are we looking at here as, as far as an order of operations? Yeah, the high priority right now, um, everything we do at Alpental is, is, is more difficult than the other areas. That needs to be said. Cecil chair is probably the, the easiest of the three, and we do want to do that uh, as soon as we can. So the planning is uh, definitely in the, very much in the near term. But really closely associated with that would be the international chair as well. So um, keeping those uh, firmly in the near term bucket, if you will. And then um, after that would be the focus on replacing Edelweiss as well. So it is quite a lot for Alpental. There's some pretty big moves happening there, but but uh, everyone feels strongly that it is an important piece of the resort to, to modernize and to update. As we've mentioned earlier, you know, Alpental really is that prime terrain. It's that, that prime place that people crave locally, especially high level skis and snowboarders. What's the vertical drop you're looking at on uh, International? It's uh, almost 2,300 feet top to bottom because the International run essentially starts almost from the very top, right to the base area or close to the base area. So you can think of it almost the entire length of the resort. I guess technically speaking, you know, you really it dumps you into what we call the infield, just above the lodges or Cecil Face. But for the most part, I really do think of it almost as a top to bottom run. The lift itself is going to start in mid-mountain. What's the vertical rise going to be on that international triple chair? Yeah, so regarding the uh, the vertical drop of uh, what you'll get from the, the international uh, lift, it's uh, basically about 1,300 feet vert. If you were to ski it from the top of the chair to where it loads, that's what you'd be looking at. And you'd be utilizing the uh, upper and lower international runs to be on that line. But like I said earlier, it it does give you other alternatives, like a lot of alternatives for accessing uh, different zones at Alpental that people are going to want. So, but thirteen hundred feet is uh, is approximately what you're looking at for Bert. And at Alvice, are we looking at the same alignment as the Legacy left here? Yeah, it's almost identical. It shifts just just a little bit because it it is probably going to be um, it's it's partly to do with the way we construct that chair. We need the access from the existing chair as long as we can in the process of building it. And so, you know, we may move it just, just slightly to allow for overlapping towers in the process, but you could really essentially think of it as uh, very closely aligned to what it is now. A lot of noise out there about clamoring for an Armstrong upgrade from a high-speed quad. Looks like you decided instead to increase out-of-base capacity with Cecil. Just talk about your thinking process there and, and why you decided that Armstrong did not need an upgrade and Instead, you would upgrade the other chair and, and spread people out more with the international chair. Well, I think uh, you know, with Armstrong Express, you know, as you know, it's a high-speed quad chair right now. And we are, and I think it's important to note, we do have it in our plans to, um, to increase capacity this summer, actually. We're going to install uh, more chairs on it, which will uh, approximately give it about 20% more capacity. That's going to be a huge boost in and of itself. But I think 
seeing how the other lift improvements play out and balance out the hill, I do not take Armstrong Express off the list of future improvements. I, I think it, we just don't specifically have it um, spelled out yet, but um, I, I think it's very much a, a target uh, in the future. So, yeah, I don't want to give anyone the impression that, that uh, Armstrong Express may not get an improvement in the future. It definitely will. But it's exciting to think we can increase the capacity in the near term immediately, actually, this year. So that's going to be really nice in and of itself. So let's wrap up here today, Guy, with a little talk on the Icon Pass. You did begin instituting Icon Pass reservations, and it looks like those will stick around for next season. Just talk about the factors that drove that policy, and you alluded to them earlier, and and how that worked out and and why you think that that's the right way to go in the future. Yeah, so as I did mention earlier, you know, we did decide to start instituting more control of, of access to our mountain in peak time. We, we did that in a number of different ways, and ICON folded into this, but you know, we, we sold less peak passes on purpose uh, because we really have good data sets on, on pass uh, visitation. And then we have a limit of how many tickets we sell for any shift. And then, of course, in that, it's important that we have a reservation process for ICON as well because we are doing those other things to, to mitigate overcrowding. It's important that ICON passes, you know, fold into that plan as well. I mean, honestly, the, the experience is really important. You know, if you come to the mountain, you want to get a lot of laps in, you want to have a good day. And I think most people recognize the fact that if you come on the weekend or on a holiday, it's probably going to be a little bit compromised uh, to a certain extent, but, but we want to limit those compromises, right? We want to you know, give people the best experience they possibly can. And that's why we've found that, that having the Icon Pass reservations is a key component in that mix as we're doing it with other, other product, uh, products as well. So, yeah, that's, uh, it has worked out really well, we think, and uh, we, we intend to keep it there for next season as well. All right, Guy. Well, incredible plan coming up. Very excited to see all of this unfold. I really appreciate you taking way more time than I promised to talk me through all this. And, and I know your skiers will be super excited to hear from you and, and to hear you break this down. So hopefully I can make it back out there again soon. And, and hopefully this time it won't be 90 degrees and there'll be snow on the ground and we can take a couple of turns together. Oh, heck yeah. I would love to show you around, Stuart. Uh, there's so much to see on this mountain. I think we talked about it uh, when we talked uh, last year, but uh, it'd be my pleasure to show you around and uh, show you all the great nooks and crannies that this place offers and particularly Arkansas. I'll look forward to that. And hopefully I can I can make it out there to pay tribute to some of those riblets before they're torn down. <laughs> well, we're going to still keep some around, I'm sure. But uh, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Stuart. That's Guy Lawrence, President and General Manager of Summit at Snoqualmie, Washington. I'm pumped. When Boyne does these things, they go all in. And that is a hell of a plan. Look, I get that some of you think the only answer to everything all the time is high-speed chairs everywhere, but I'm telling you that that is a really, really smart plan at Alpental, and that is going to change the way that whole place skis. So thank you very much for running that down for us, guy. As if you didn't have enough going on at the end of a major storm cycle and when you're launching the most important plan of your tenure, and we threw in some technical hassles just to make sure we were on difficult mode. But you crushed a guy, and I appreciate that very much. And thank you all for listening. Coming up next, Ragged Mountain General Manager Eric Barnes should have that one for you next week. And then 
I know what you're thinking. When does this thing stop for the summer? It does not. We just keep on going. Maybe slow it down a bit, but here's what I've got for you in May. Indy Pass founder Doug Fish, Real Skiers founder Jackson Hogan, the owners of Little Paul Bunyan Ski Area in Wisconsin, and then I just booked this one, Snow Trails Ohio General Manager Scott Chrislip. And just a heads up, email subscribers get those podcasts as soon as they drop. It takes two to three hours for the podcast to sync up on iTunes or Spotify. So you will want to get in on the email list at stormskiing.com. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.